This week, Emily is dealing with Hurricane Ian, so I'll be alone for most of the episode. But fortunately, last week, Emily and I were lucky enough to speak to Dr. Amy Williams of the University of Florida to discuss her role in the collection of rocks on Mars by NASA's Perseverance rover and how we're going to get them back. If you have any thoughts on what we're doing, then please let us know by getting in touch via our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com. But right now, enjoy episode 109 of the Space and Things Podcast. I'm Dave Giles and welcome to episode 109 of the Space and Things podcast. Normally I'm joined by Emily Carney, but she lives in Florida and I'm sure you've seen the news about Hurricane Ian. If you follow Emily on social media, you'll be aware that she's evacuated to a different part of the state. And as I write this, I'm happy to report that we've been in contact, she's in good spirits and all is well. But the worst is just about to start for her where she is. So hopefully by the time you're listening to this, it will have passed and she'll be heading back home. However, we did record our interview for this week's podcast last week. Over the last few months, we've had many occasions where we have discussed the Perseverance Mars rover and the collection of rock samples. We've briefly discussed the plans to bring them back to Earth in a few years, but we've never discussed why this is important until today. Dr. Amy Williams is an assistant professor of geology at the University of Florida and has been one of the long-term planners of this mission. Recently, scientists discovered water-altered rocks on the floor of Jezero Crater, the study site that hosts a large ancient delta carved by water billions of years ago. These rocks provide further evidence of a past watery Mars and are similar to the conditions that likely gave rise to life on Earth, and they could contain signs of life themselves. Of course, for us to really understand them, we need to get them back to Earth so that we can study them properly, and this is what's going on now and is what's being planned right as we speak. So here is our interview with Dr. Amy Williams. Okay, we're off to a good start, Blade Cool. First of all, welcome, Amy. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. To start, let's get some background. Tell us a little bit about analyzing geologic features of other worlds throughout the decades. What has changed? You know, obviously, it's it's been a while since the Apollo and the Viking days. Yeah, so, so much has improved in our, our space-bearing technology. And you have to think back to when we first flew by Mars and took images of it, I think, with Mariner. You know, we saw this desolate, rocky desert and and really thought, you know, there's no possibility for life here. And prior to that, we were hoping there was life on Mars. People thinking that they'd seen waterways and aqueducts and thinking there was a civilization on the surface of Mars. So it really made everyone kind of think about, all right, what is planetary evolution? What's really happening? And so once we were able to get rovers, landers, orbiters, around Mars and to get higher and higher resolution images, we actually stepped a little bit closer to uh, the realm where you might be able to have life on Mars by recognizing that Mars once had a lot of water. It was a, it had many habitable environments, places where life would want to live. And so that has been sort of the, the key to reinterpreting Mars is seeing these, these images of 
geomorphic or geologic features and saying, okay, on Earth, we know how these form with the presence of water or with wind. And so we're able to use that to interpret the environments that we see on Mars. So how did you end up getting involved with Mars geology? What was your route into that area of science? I was uh, very fortunate to be able to join the Curiosity rover mission as a graduate student. And so my PhD advisor brought me in. I was able to join the mission before we even launched. And so I feel like professionally I've sort of grown up on the Mars mission. Been working with Curiosity mission since 2009, still work with it now. And then um, just a few years ago, I had the opportunity to join the Perseverance mission. So I feel extraordinarily fortunate to be one of a, a, you know, relatively small number of people who work on both active rover missions on Mars right now. That's very cool. My understanding is you were involved with some of the planning for Percy, which is really cool. So what were you and your team hoping to find on Mars in terms of geology? So that's a really excellent question because, you know, it kind of goes back to Emily's first question that you have these images of Mars and you say, okay, we think that we can answer the questions we want to answer by going to this one specific location on Mars. Do you send a, you know, two billion plus dollar rover to go to this location and ask these questions. And we went to Jezero Crater with Percy because we wanted to explore the delta. And so this is a structure that's formed by a river flowing into a lake. And on Earth, this is a really great environment for life to to live in and to be preserved in. And so that's why we wanted to explore that with Perseverance, to look for evidence of ancient life. And so what we did is land in Jezero Crater, our terrain relative navigation sort of helped select exactly where we were going to land, which ended up being on the relatively flat crater floor and not on the delta. And so what that actually meant was that we got to explore an entirely different region of Jezero Crater than we might have if we had landed directly on the delta. And what's so neat about that is that the crater floor ends up being these igneous rocks, meaning that they were formed from the cooling of magmas and lavas. Not that we wouldn't expect that to be present on Mars, of course, but if you're sitting in what used to be a massive lake, you might expect to have sedimentary lake deposits there. It looks like much of that has been scoured away to reveal the underlying bedrock. Have the samples collected by Perseverance thus far like shown anything surprising or, or really unexpected? So the samples that we've been collecting up until we began the Delta campaign, they were all part of this crater floor, all part of these igneous rocks. And so beyond, you know, being surprised that we did not see any lake deposits so close to the Delta, we were also surprised to find rocks that represented both lavas as well as those that crystallize or, or cool very slowly from magmas. We have these, for the geologists out there, these really beautiful olivine crystals, these green gemstones, basically, in the rock that form naturally from when the magma cools off. Wow. So it's been um, really surprising and exciting to to get these kinds of samples because one of the really cool things we can do with these samples when they're back on Earth is get ages on them to learn at what time period they form. And so this is really going to revolutionize our understanding of Mars because for the first time, we're going to have a rock from, from a place where we know where it came from, and we're going to have an age, a very specific age, to assign to that, to call that absolute dating, age dating. So that's going to help us constrain sort of when these things formed. And one of the big questions is, 
when did the delta form? So when was water flowing on Mars? We have ideas, but we don't have very specific dates to go with that. So that's one of the really exciting things that I think we're going to be able to learn from the return of the crater floor sample. And, and with those different dates, what does that help us understand, not just in terms of the rocks and, and the water, but ultimately the search for life? Does knowing those dates help that in any way? Does it help us figure that out? I think that knowing the dates that water was actively flowing on Mars, and again, we have we have time frames on the order of you know a billion years from the formation of Mars and Earth and Mars at the same age, and we know on Earth that life formed, you know, there again is a range. Some people say even earlier than 4 billion years ago. Some people say there's definitely evidence by 3.8 billion years ago. If you think about like that time range and apply it to Mars, we can ask ourselves, okay, if life evolved on Earth at that time, did it also evolve at that time frame on Mars? And so you finally get to constrain when we know there was water on Mars, when we know it was a habitable environment, and does that correspond with when you would expect life to have arisen, if it ever did? So how does your team preserve the the integrity of, you know, samples and things like that? Like, I'm sure a big concern is, you know, once you get samples back to Earth, you know, you don't want to contaminate it with yourself, obviously. So how do you guys uh, work around, you know, that issue? So there are two kinds of contamination that we would worry about. One is forward contamination and one is backwards contamination. So forward would be that terrestrial or Earth microbes actually traveled on the rover and were somehow able to contaminate the samples. And there have been so many steps taken to ensure that our sampling apparatus, the tube, the way we handle samples is as absolutely clean as is humanly possible, and we've taken all of these steps to ensure that. So once we've collected the samples, then they have to actually sit on Mars for a while before we send the rest of the Mars sample return missions to collect them and bring them back to Earth. And then what you want to do is is both not contaminate those samples with anything Karen, but also you have to be really responsible about anything from those samples getting out. So, of course, we're sampling rocks that, you know, might have evidence for ancient life. We are not anticipating modern life, but this is one of those cases where you need to be absolutely sure. So, one, if you think that you found evidence for life in these rocks, you need to be able to make sure that you didn't somehow accidentally put it there. (laughs) And then also, if there did happen to be life in these rocks, you want to make sure that, especially if it's in any way viable, that it's not able to get out because you never know how one ecosystem will impact another. So again, that's not what we expect to have happen. And there is a large sample receiving facility that is being planned that would enable us to bring these samples in and to obtain all of those procedures and protocols. But making sure, in my mind, as an astrobiologist looking for ancient life, what's important to me is that if we were to see evidence for what we think is ancient Martian life in these samples, we must be completely confident that it's not somehow contamination. Okay. So we've we've had a couple of Patreon questions, and one of them is very relevant to what you just said. Ronald Heinzelman has asked, if Amy is able to discuss what steps are being taken to make sure the rocks are safe when they be brought back to Earth? Obviously, we just had a pandemic. Are there really specific things? Is it being discussed about, you know, we don't want to bring back some kind of thing that ends up causing disease or bad things on this planet? Absolutely, yeah. It would be a reverse 
war of the world. <laughs> so, no, it's a really great question. And, and absolutely, this is a huge thing for our space science community. Um, we've been talking about this kind of stewardship of space, both, you know, reducing or eliminating forward and backwards contamination since the start of our space-faring age as, as humanity. So, one of the things that we're doing is building within this sample receiving facility. It's both built to make sure that nothing can get in. So it is a high-grade laboratory where material from outside of the lab space can't get in. And then within that is very high-grade facility that doesn't let anything out of basically that box where the samples are kept. And so in that way, we have multiple fail-safe to keep anything from getting in and anything from getting out. Now, beyond that, as far as getting the samples back from Mars, part of the architecture of bringing the samples back is that there is a point where we, we kind of separate contact from anything on the spacecraft when it comes back that has touched Mars so that the stuff that's within the, um, the vessel that's bringing the cores back, that's the only thing that has contacted anything on Mars. And so it's a sort of a, a break the chain kind of step to make sure that we always have a step between us and Mars in bringing back these really unique and precious samples, but we certainly are going to do our due diligence. So does that mean that no human will ever actually touch a Mars rock, or, or does it just take a certain amount of time before you qualify that they're safe? So yes, that's the next step where, you know, we certainly, like the point of bringing them back is to really get revolutionary science out of these, these samples that have this gorgeous environmental context. So there um, are multiple committees, there are multiple panels that are overseeing how would you determine the samples are safe. You can sterilize samples as far as we know. There are certain conditions beyond which life simply cannot survive. And so the samples could be subjected to those conditions prior to being released to any lab. But, you know, there's, there's discussion that it'll take a while to everyone to feel confident that we have done everything we needed to do to make sure that nothing can get out and nothing gets in. Okay, we've had an, another question from a Patreon. James Franklin has asked, what is the time scale roughly for returning these samples to Earth? Do we have one yet? We do. We do finally have a time frame for Mars sample return. So we're expecting these samples to come back in 2033. Wow. I have been saying for a while now that Mars sample return, that architecture is the grandest thing that we've attempted since the Apollo program. Um, in my, my personal and humble opinion, I think that the questions that can be addressed are uh, head and shoulders above anything that we've really been able to do previously. And so in order to accomplish that extraordinary science, you do need a large and complex mission architecture to enable it. So perseverance is collecting the samples. Um, another mission will go to um, land and retrieve the samples, or Perseverance is going to bring them to the, the vehicle that will launch them off the surface of Mars, which has never been done before. We've never launched off the surface of another planet. And then that vehicle has to be captured by an orbiter that will bring those rocks back to Earth. So it's a really complex architecture with several steps that we've never um, attempted to start to finish on another world before. So, I mean, I think the science that will enable is going to really shake us up in a, in a good way, make us see how Earth and Mars were similar, how much they have diverged in their planetary evolution, and hopefully help to answer some of our most profound questions about whether we're alone in the universe. 
Wow. So what do you think we can look forward to once we see the samples arrive back to Earth for future analyses? Any idea? Sure. So all of my my interests tend to focus around astrobiology, geobiology, and how life can be preserved in the rock record. And when I talk about life, I'm describing microorganisms, sort of like our bacteria. And so one of the things that I'm very interested to learn about is the presence of organic carbon preserved in these rocks. So that's one of the ways that we can say that very ancient rocks on Earth actually hosted life. That's one of the ways you can say, all right, we're pretty sure life arose 3.8, you know, plus or minus, however many millions or hundreds of millions of years of time. So that's one of the things I'm really excited about is learning about whether there's a biologic fingerprint for those organic molecules or whether they're made absolutely without the need for life, which also happens within the universe. Within our solar system, organics are made all the time abiotically. So that is is what I'm really focused on, and, and it's, it's really exciting because one of our really recent press releases um, was able to share that we've detected the highest amount of organic matter um, that we've seen this entire mission just at our last sampling campaign on the Delta. Wow. And so we have these samples from an environment where, where if there was life, it probably could have lived, and it's the right kind of rock to preserve evidence for that life. So we're starting to get all these little puzzle pieces, and we're learning how to put them together to answer this question. That's very cool. So actually, the idea of sending Percy to the Delta was a good one based on those findings, right? Absolutely. Oh, isn't it great when a plan comes together? <laughs> yeah. all, all those years of planning and it, it worked out right awesome okay and and finally um i think a lot of us have seen the martian movie you know with matt damon so do you think it might be possible or, or worth a try to grow some try to grow some vegetation and martian soil that's a really fabulous question <laughs> i i always love the connections with that film um, some things are, are a little accurate. Some things are a little dramatized. <laughs> so if we want to have permanent uh, fixtures outside of Earth, beyond Earth, we do have to find a way to feed ourselves. And so I think that the attempt to grow food in augmented Martian soil is only a step away from work that's actually already been done at my home institution where folks are able to grow plants within lunar soil. So these are the kinds of small studies that are able to expand and balloon into ways for us to actually develop agriculture on other worlds. Now, is it in the next decade? Is it in the next you know, five decades? There's a lot of work to do. And I think that's one of the reasons why our our communal investment in STEM fields in research and innovation is, is so important. It's not just for exploration. It's for us to develop our technologies to enable ourselves to reach beyond what we've ever thought possible. Amazing. This has been wonderful. I've learned a hell of a lot. So thank you so much, Amy, for joining us. This has really been great. It was my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. We're getting signals from MRO. Tango Delta. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. Okay, I found that really interesting. The the main thing that really got me there was finding out about the age of the rocks 
was important to be able to compare it to the life on Earth. It's such an obvious thing, right? But I had never thought of it like that. Oh, that's why it's important to know. And, and how many times have you and I spoke about things in Martian news uh, in our news section where they've realised that things are billion years off in the timeline. So actually, it's so important they get this right, isn't it? I didn't realise that's what the ball game was in regards to these years and, and how many billions of years old things were. It's really uh, fascinating to, you know, just to hear about the, the sample return, what they're going to do with that as well. I mean, that's just going to be nuts. Percy's going to bring over the samples, drop them off, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to drop some kids off. Then the spacecraft is going to launch from Mars and meet up with an orbiter and come back to Earth, apparently. Like, that to me is like for all mankind type stuff. That is nuts. So I can't wait till we do that. That's going to be crazy. Amy called it the most ambitious thing we've done since the Apollo program. Yeah. Oh, it, it, it absolutely is. It has to be, right? Because that's never been done. We've no. taken things to Mars, but nothing's ever come back. It's yeah, it's just a it's it's a nuts program. It's a nuts idea and I'm all for it. I think it's fascinating. But 2033 seems a long time away in that regard, doesn't it? Especially when you've got like Elon saying he's going to be out there putting humans there then. I mean, the fact that they're saying that just for a rock sample mission, I think is by the way a lot more realistic than having humans there. But it still feels a long way off, doesn't it? It does, but it's still Really cool to me that they're, that's even something that's like in the works. I don't know. I'm just blown away by it, you know, and I'm really excited to sort of follow her, Amy's work, Dr. Amy's work. I know we're going to have her back on the show. It's going to be really fascinating to sort of follow her career and what she's doing because I'm really just fascinated, like, uh, I'm fascinated that she's somebody who st studies like Mars geology. That to me would be the ultimate job. That would be really cool. I think it'll reveal not just things about Mars, but I, I think she brought this up. It's going to reveal secrets about our solar system in general. Things we never knew about our, our, I guess, interplanetary neighborhood. I mean, it's weird to call it that because everything seems, space is huge. Everything's so far apart. But it's like we are part of a, of a solar system. You know, we're, we're part of it. I think a lot of the great interplanetary missions, you know, of the last, geez, 40-something years, over 40 years, they've always tried to sort of answer the deeper question of where did we all come from and how are we all related to each other? Because Mars, you know, is probably the most, I guess, I don't know if you could say Earth-like planet. And then you have, you know, Venus, which is very forbidding. You have Jupiter, which is just a giant gas planet, also very forbidding. It's like, okay, how do these all sort of work in concert with each other? Or how does... How did we all originate, you know, from similar things, but we're also completely foreign to each other? I don't know. That that to me is very fascinating. So I'm really looking forward to sort of following that that whole saga. There's another aspect of this interview which gets me, which is the University of Florida are doing some cool stuff, aren't yes! they? Yes. I mean, this this is another scientist based at University of Florida. We spoke to Dr. Annalisa Paul about the plants are being grown in lunar soil. There's a lot of cutting-edge space science going on down that way. It's a pretty cool place to be working. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe someday from the same university we'll figure out if we could uh, 
grow potatoes on Mars. Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So for those of you who like to do this kind of stuff, you can watch that interview in full over on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash space and things. And a big thanks to our patrons who helped supply some questions there. It's always nice to, to get your perspective on things. It takes the interviews in places that I wouldn't have taken them. So it's a really, it's something I'm really grateful about our patrons for. Discovery Houston. Okay, on to this week's spaceflight news. It's still just me. We've had seven launches this week. Four in China, one in Florida, one in California, and one in Kazakhstan. And as always, full details of all the launches and all the stories I'm about to talk about, including videos when they're relevant, can be found in the show notes, which you can find on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com, or follow the link in the episode description in your podcast provider. The Kazakhstan launch took a crew of three to the International Space Station, a story which I feel has been rather overlooked in the last week. Anyway, Russian cosmonauts Sergei Prokopiev and Dmitry Petalin were joined by NASA astronaut Frank Rubio for the launch of Soyuz MS-22. The cooperation between NASA and Roscosmos is still working well despite the ongoing war in Ukraine, which is certainly causing diplomatic tension between the countries. This is part of an ongoing seat swap which sees astronauts fly on the Soyuz and cosmonauts fly on NASA's crewed missions, which are currently being operated by SpaceX. It does seem odd to me that this is still happening, especially with all that's going on, but I do think that any cooperation between the countries could and should be considered positive, even if it may come across a little tone deaf at some times. The launch in California was a Delta IV heavy launch from Vandenberg Space Force Base, and it's really worth checking out the videos and images which are doing the rounds of this this week. It's a beautiful launch vehicle, and this was the final launch of that rocket from California, which always provides some wonderful scenery for and backdrops for rocket launches. The United Launch Alliance, who are operating this rocket, are phasing it out, and it will be replaced by the Vulcan Centaur, which should get its first launch at the end of this year. However, we do still have two more Delta IV heavy flights over the next couple of years, which will both be from Florida. The Delta IV Heavy has been in operation since 2004, and the flight this week, which delivered a payload for the US National Reconnaissance Office, was the 14th flight of that rocket. Elsewhere, it's been a week of rock and roll, and I'd like to credit Adam Thurmond in Space Hipsters for that joke. Let's start with The Rock. As we previewed in last week's podcast, the DART mission completed its job. On Monday the 26th of September, it successfully slammed into Dimorphos, a tiny rock which is orbiting a slightly bigger rock called Didymus. The purpose was to test if such a technique could change the path of an asteroid which might in future be heading for Earth. The DART spacecraft was travelling 4 miles per second at the point of impact and it really was quite something to watch. They had a live feed from a camera on board in which we got to see the tiny rock up close moments before the impact, although I'm sure you've all seen that already. There have also been a number of other images processed from Earth-based telescopes and the Webb Space Telescope and of course the little Italian CubeSat, which separated from the DART spacecraft a few days before. Now, it's going to take some time to find out exactly what the results of this test are, but the images look pretty explosive, so it would be a surprise if it hadn't changed the flight path of Dimorphos at all. Also, the concept of sending a spacecraft 
to autonomously fly itself 7 million miles at a speed of 4 miles per second for a pinpoint crash on an object that small is just quite outstanding. So good job to all those who are involved. Now on to the roll. NASA has rolled back the Artemis 1 rocket from the launch pad in Florida and it's now back in the vehicle assembly building at Kennedy Space Center. It did complete the critical fuel loading test, which we spoke about last week, and NASA was hopeful that the rocket would launch on Monday or Tuesday. Was it Tuesday? It was Tuesday. But unfortunately, Hurricane Ian stopped those plans. It's hoped that we'll be able to get it back out onto the pad in time for a launch window in November. However, shortly after getting back into the vehicle assembly building, a small fire broke out. Luckily, no one was hurt, and the rocket apparently was never at risk, according to NASA. Out of the storm and into the fire. I do believe that's the expression, or is it something else coming up? Anyway, Hurricane Ian is also delaying the launch of NASA's Crew-5 mission by a day, and it will now attempt to launch the SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule on October the 4th. The crew includes NASA astronauts Nicole Mann and Jos Casada. Japan's Koichi Wakata and Russian cosmonaut Anna Kikina, and they'll be going to the ISS for five months. And while we're talking about the International Space Station, Samantha Cristoforetti has become the first European woman to take command of the station, taken over from cosmonaut Oleg Artemyev, who used a changeover ceremony to say the following. In spite of all the storms on Earth, we continue our international cooperation and thank God that there are smart people who do not stop such a thread of peace. Cristoforetti becomes the fifth European commander of the ISS. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the European Space Agency made an announcement at the International Astronautical Congress in Paris this week, giving the names of seven astronauts who are to train for NASA's Artemis missions to the Moon, with three of them set to go on Lunar Gateway, the space station which will orbit the Moon, and one of them to set foot on the Moon before the end of the decade. The astronauts are Thomas Pesquet from France, Tim Peake from Great Britain, Alexander Gerst and Matthias Mora from Germany, Luca Parmitano and Samantha Cristoforetti from Italy, and Denmark's Andreas Mogensen, who have all been to the International Space Station at least once. Now, the odd part of this announcement is that this is also the full list of ESA's current active astronauts. So they basically just said, all of our current team have a chance to be on these missions. There was also not said whether the next batch of ESA astronauts, which are expected to be announced in the next few months, could also be in contention for these assignments. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. They're all training for Artemis. All in good time. We'll find out what's going on there. And finally, after talking about Mars today, it feels appropriate to end on a story from the Red Planet. The Ingenuity helicopter has completed its 30-second flight, travelling 308 feet or 94 metres, on a 55-second flight with a top speed of 10.6 miles per hour, 17.1 kilometres per hour, and it's the second flight of this month. This thing just keeps on going and going and going. Oh, my golly. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, but is it bright in the sun? That's it for this week. Next week I'm on holiday, but we have already pre-recorded an episode where the only thing that's missing is the weekly news catch-up. But we'll be back the week after to get you up to date with everything from the world of spaceflight. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.